everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode number 30. Today I'm going to talk about shearing strength, which doesn't get talked a lot about when it comes to the technical properties of lumber. And I'm going to be stretching my knowledge base a little bit here because really I'm not an engineer and understanding tensile properties and tensile strengths is if you, if you Google this and you dig a little bit deeper, a lot of people will say that some of the numbers you find on shearing strength and tensile strength are a bit specious because there's so much variance from one species to another. And moreover, things like knots and changing in the grain will affect or lower really the tensile strength of wood. So if we had a board that was perfectly straight grain from one end to the other, you could do a more um, accurate test of shearing strength or tensile force. But how many boards do we have like that? So again, if you were to Google shearing strength of say maple, you're going to find charts. The forest products laboratory has a whole PDF that has charts of many, many different species and all the technical properties that is particularly beneficial. In fact, what I'll do is, is link to that PDF in the show notes and you'll see the numbers there. And again, take them with a grain of salt, but like I'm always saying when it comes to looking at the technical properties numbers, it's not so much that maple is 10,100 kilopascals. It's how is maple, hard maple that is, in comparison to black cherry. And regardless of what those numbers are, what is the delta? What is the gap between them? And in practice, really what we're talking about with shearing strength is how difficult is it to plane? The technical definition of shearing strength is it's anywhere from 10 to 15% of the tensile strength of that particular board. But before I dive down that rabbit hole, I want to take a minute to editorialize a little bit. Um, this is my show, so it's it's a mouthpiece in some respects. This by no means is meant to represent any particular company or represent the lumber industry as a whole. It's some guy who happens to work for a lumber company who really, really likes wood, kind of sharing his opinions and sharing his knowledge. So the world's gone crazy, folks. You know, we got a pandemic uh, here in Maryland. We've got the 17 year locust showing up again. So it's getting just pretty biblical around here and revolutions going on. And, you know, I don't even know where to look right now with the way things have, have gotten. Um, but I have a little story. I was helping um, a colleague of mine build uh, a small box to hold drinks in. He restored, he does a lot of estate sales and ends up with a lot of material kind of at the end of the estate sale that he's got to haul off to the dump or whatever. And he'll usually take his pick of things. He found a bench that maybe was made out of teak, but it was just so weather was hard to say, but it seemed like it had good bones. So he kept it and he stripped it down and restored it. And sure enough, it is a teak garden bench, quite nice. And he decided that he had a couple of cushions that work, but it left a gap between the cushions. And he thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could have a box with like cup holders in it? So it would act kind of like an armrest, but also a place to put cups. So he approached me and said, could you possibly build me a box like that? You know, I'll, uh, I'll retrieve the lumber. And, you know, one of the benefits of working for a lumber company is we often have offcuts and random pieces that get graded out. A lot of offcuts that come off the bandsaw mill when we're doing resawing and things that while we do have to pay for the lumber that we use, if they're offcuts like that and destined for the dumpster, we don't have to pay for them. So he was able to pull together some really nice um, quarter sawn teak in really thin cuts, about three eighths of an inch. Again, they were offcuts from a bandsaw job. And he brought them to me 
at my house during this whole COVID thing and said, uh, you know, could, could you build this box? Sure. Why not? I thought it'll be, it'll be a fun project. Needless to say, like any woodworker, that simple little project gets over-engineered. You get all these ideas. How can I make this cooler? And part of me is thinking, I don't want this to leave my shop unless it's got a little bit of me in it. I don't want to produce a shoddy product. Even though I know that that he would be more than happy with something that was just banged together and held the, the, the cups or held his drinks. So yeah, I'm getting to work on this and it's taking longer than I thought it would as usual because I'm making it even prettier and more functional than it needs to be. Long story short, too late, I ended up needing some magnets. I decided that I wanted a lid on the back that would just kind of lift off. Um, there was no way to really hinge it because of the way it sits on the seat. So I needed some magnets and I was all out of rare earth magnets except for these really, really huge ones that would have made it so hard to pull this lid off. I wanted some small ones and I knew that my local um, Home Depot had it. So here I go, masking up, heading out into the great scary pandemic world and this is an observation born of the fact that I have been in quarantine. You know, I'm on Zoom calls all day long. Um, by the way, I'm back to work full time at the lumberyard for those those that did express, uh, you know, sorry to hear about that. Thank you so much. It was a furlough. I am back full time. But let's be real. Other than like my dog and my wife, those are the only people that I've had actual physical contact with since early March. So I'm out in the world and rubbing elbows, six feet distance with people on a crazy weekend afternoon at a Lowe's. And I gotta say, I'm really disappointed in humanity. And here's where I'm gonna editorialize. And if you're just here to listen to the lumber updates, then maybe fast forward like five minutes or so. But just to see how people interact with one another. Fortunately, everyone was wearing a mask. And I do believe if you tried to go into that Lowe's without a mask, you would be asked to leave. I mean, it's posted everywhere. Masks must be worn to enter the building. So at least everyone had masks. And some people were trying to socially distance from one another and other people were just kind of not paying attention to it. And I, I chalk that up to just, we're not used to this new normal. And I do believe this is going to be the new normal for at least a while. But then there were other people. And I don't wanna say another person, there were people. We're talking 10%, maybe 20% of the people in the building seem to be taking advantage of this as an opportunity to button line. I was standing at the end of one of the rows near the checkout and there was a, a, a gentleman with his family who was obviously trying to keep distance between himself and the woman who was at the checkout counter. And this guy came up, made eye contact with the gentleman distancing and just stepped in the line in front of him. And the gentleman said, you know, excuse me, the line's back here. The guy turned around and said, I know, and continued in the line. And you could see that this man was visibly upset, but he's got his kids with him. What is he going to do? So he kind of like, you, you saw the wheels turning in his head and he kind of sighed and was like, you know, deep breath, let it go. It's not a battle worth fighting. And, you know, you could see his kids kind of looking up at their dad, like, you know, what is this dad? And more than likely there was a conversation that happened in the car later, like no kids, that's not right, but you got to pick and choose your battles. Now was not the time. We weren't in a hurry. However, I'm, I'm not, he's the parent. I'll let him do that. But I just kind of sighed to myself and said, Unbelievable. Now, I'm probably 30 feet away witnessing this, and there was a moment in me that I thought, you know what, Shannon, step forward and say something. But you could just tell, looking at this jerk, that it would not have made a difference. 
What was more upsetting is that the cashier saw it. If I had been that cashier, I probably would have refused him service or said, look, sir, you need to move back in line or something. But again, we all say this after the fact and we don't know. So moving on, I'm going into the back into the hardware section where I know they have some magnets and I see another guy do it again, just kind of bump in front of someone who was waiting to talk to um, a sales, a Lowe's employee and just kind of you know, it was one of those, oh, I just have a quick question, but there were like two or three people waiting to talk to this guy. But again, because of the social distancing, you know, it's not like there's really a line. There's just people standing there. So if you're totally clueless, you might think that there wasn't a line, but let's be real folks. He knew there was a line and he just kind of walked up. Oh, quick question. Like it's like the hazards. It's okay to park in the fire lane. If you have your hazards on, even if you go into the liquor store for 25 minutes, oh, my hazards are on. Come on, folks. You, you Stop being such jerks to the people around you. And this is such small potatoes, folks. When you look at the things that that started in Minneapolis and the entire Black Lives Matter movement, I mean, this is, we're talking tiny, tiny, piddly little suburban, you know, uh, problems with how people behave inside a hardware store. But I can't step back. I can't help but step back and think that this is a, um, a symptom of how we as a species are starting to interact with one another. So I'm laying all this groundwork to say that I've left the the Lowe's and I'm in the car and I decide, you know what, I'm going to go through a McDonald's drive-thru. I want an iced tea. I'm weird that way. I love the iced tea that the McDonald's around here makes. So we're, we're there in the car. My wife and I are in the car and you know how McDonald's have now the two drive-thru lanes. There's kind of the one lane and then it splits into two and there are two, um, little order boxes. So we are um, about to pull around to the right to go into the right hand, the second lane. The single lane, the single line has now merged or forked into two. So I'm about to pull in and this guy comes around the wrong side of the building, you know, clearly going against the arrows painted on the asphalt, makes a U-turn and drives into the second line right in front of me. So I hawk my horn and like wave at the guy like, hello, there's a line back here. He looks right at me and pulls up to the box. And I'm not one that is easily angered. I tend to be like the gentleman at the Lowe's and just say, look, this is not a battle worth fighting. Don't make a scene. You're not in that big of a hurry. But this pissed me off. There's no other way to say it. This was clearly, clearly, there were like seven people behind me. It was a busy McDonald's. And I kind of looked over my shoulder and everyone is like, who is this jackass? So I did what I probably shouldn't have done. I got out of the car and I walked up to the guy and I've got my mask on. And I say, uh, sir, we're in line back here. You need to pull around the building and get into the back of the line. He looks right at me and says, no, I'm not going to do that. And like, that was my response, like speechless, like, really, are you that much of a jerk that how can you possibly think you're in the right? So I got mad. I got really mad. And I said some things that would have been bleeped on TV and I lost my cool. I will admit it. I, you know, I obviously didn't put hands on the man. I didn't kick his car or anything stupid like that. I did nothing wrong. I just yelled at the guy. So then I, you know, I said, fine. I stepped in front of his car and I stepped up to the McDonald's box and figured I'm going to place my order. Meanwhile, my dog, who is the biggest hothead you ever know, is barking his head off in the car behind him. And my wife is waving to me saying, come on, come on, don't, don't make a scene. So I was like, fine, fine, write it off. And I walked by and I just said, sir, you're an asshole. Just kind of got back in the car and 
believe me, that was the quietest I had been. And I said that a little bit louder and I shouldn't have, I recognized that I shouldn't have because there were people there with kids in windows down and they didn't need to hear me using profane language. But long story short, I feel bad now. I feel bad for stepping up and correcting someone after seeing people walk all over other people in this Lowe's and just seeing it happen and, and thinking I should have stepped up and said something when, when I watched that happen at the, the cash register in Lowe's. And it just happened to me. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to let this go. This bothers me. There were a lot of people behind me. And I will say that as I, I did finally give up and I was walking back to my car, the woman who was behind me did wave out her window and say, thank you for trying. So I do appreciate that my hotheadedness wasn't necessarily viewed as look at this jerk, but it bothers me that I'm the one that actually feels bad now. I'm the one that feels bad for calling this jerk into question for his behavior. I mean, what goes through your head to think I'm going to just pull a U-turn and pull in front of all these people online and there'll be no repercussions for it. I don't know what happened beyond that because honestly, I was so mad at that point. I knew I needed to get out of there. So I pulled out a line and I left. I sincerely hope that the McDonald's people saw this happening on the camera and they refused service to this man. Probably not. I'm sure he probably got his Big Mac that he was in such a hurry to get to, but it just punctuates the thought that we've got to start being better to one another. We've got to start respecting one another. And I'm not going to get into politics and race and religion and all that, but you know, we're one step away from that. I'm, I might as well be saying that. It does not matter what your story is. There is no reason to act this way around your fellow humans. There's no reason to take advantage of social distance spacing, to cut in front of line, to, to get a two by four off the rack that you couldn't have waited 30 seconds for the person in front of you to move beyond. So I'm sorry, folks. I know this is a lumber podcast. I know that this has nothing about it. Although I am talking about a story that happened in a hardware store. So that's kind of lumber related. This is just me editorializing and saying, stop being a jerk to the people around you and behave, <laughs> be polite, be decent to one another, be excellent to one another, right? I mean, Bill and Ted said it best. So <laughs> I'm actually getting like emotional and worked up here because I still am so mad that I'm the one that had to lose my cool. And I'm the one that actually feels bad for losing my cool and acting like a blowhard when <laughs> the other guy was clearly in the wrong. But he got away with it. And those of us that continue to follow the rules and try to be decent to one another and try to be pleasant human beings just get trod on by people who are jerks about it. So yeah, there's a lot of terrible, terrible stuff going on in the world. And I'm talking about a stupid incident that happened in line in a McDonald's drive-thru. So come on, Shannon, grow up, put on your big boy pants and move on. But again, it's a symptom. It's a symptom of what we have become as a species and it's got to stop it's got to stop so let's bring this back to lumber you know if you're looking to buy lumber and you go to that lumber yard and there's an employee there that maybe isn't being as attentive as he should tell him that 
you know, I work at a lumber yard and the guys that I work with who work in the yard are all decent human beings. And we get busy and we get caught up in our lives and we forget about priorities and we forget about what's important. And maybe we don't act as kindly as we should to our fellow humans. And it comes off as that guy didn't want to give me the time of day because my order was too small or he was too busy doing something else and wasn't going to be polite. The only thing I can say is call him on it. And if they continue to act like a jerk, then you're going to have to just wipe, wipe your hands clean and walk away. But hopefully, hopefully, if you do call them on it and they say, you know what, you're right. What what a great moment of truth that can be. So be excellent to one another. Hold each other accountable for being polite and being decent human beings to one another. And hopefully that's a step in the right direction. Okay, enough. (laughs) Moving on. Let's talk about shearing strength. Now, as I said at the outset of this, shearing strength is 10 to 15% the total tensile strength of a board. And as you are, um, this is parallel to the grain, and this is the key part. Um, Compression strength has to do with the strongest part of wood. Compression strength is actually along the ingrain, pressing down on the ingrain of a board. If you've got a post, like a fence post, and you push down right on top of that fence post, that is your compression strength. Your shearing strength is what does it take to actually shear or pull away part of the, the, the wood parallel to the grain? And what does a plane do? A plane shears wood away. And that's what we're talking about. So while there's a lot of other engineering math and stuff going on here, shearing strength can be an indicator of how easy is it to plane this board. Now, hand plane or power plane, it's still the same action that's cutting through that. Certainly, the size of the blade, the depth of cut, all of that will matter, the amount of force that that is being put into that. So again, let me reiterate, the number itself isn't that important, but the differences in the numbers between species can be particularly telling. I also talk about how oftentimes you can't just look at one number and make a determination. You can't just look at the jank of hardness and say, this board is going to be easy to work, somewhat easy to work, hard to work, etc it'll get you started. And in the last episode, I talked about Jenka as being a good number to get started. But you will often also see species that have similar Jenka hardness, but in reality, like, holy crap, this is so much harder to work. This is harder to plane. This is harder to chisel into, but it's got the same Jenka hardness. Why is that? I do find that shearing strength can be one of those additional numbers to consult. So, If we look at a couple of examples, uh, I work with a lot of domestic species. Uh, I kind of happen to prefer them. They're certainly a lot easier to get, but just the aesthetic wise, I love the look of cherry, I love the look of walnut, and I like the look of oak and maple. Maple and cherry, I work with quite a bit. At face value, they're very similar looking. They're both diffuse porous, They both have quite small pores. Certainly uh, hard maple has smaller pores than cherry, but not that much. I mean, you're looking at under magnification, you'll see some differences, but they're very similar in structure. Now the Janko hardness of cherry is like 850, um, whereas maple is like 1450. So that certainly by itself accounts for why hard maple is harder to work. But let's take it another step further and let's look at the shearing strength numbers. And again, I'm referencing a forest products laboratory document here, but hard maple or sugar maple, 
when dried down to 12% is 16,100 kilopascals. So that's a big number, right? But again, that doesn't really make much sense all by itself. Whereas American black cherry has, let's see here, let's consult this chart. Boy, there's a lot of numbers on this chart. Um, 11,700. So 5,000 kilopascals lower. You know, that's like a third. It's like a third easier to plane. And I think we can we can agree with that. When you put a hand plane or a power planer to a cherry board and a hard maple board, yeah, that makes about, that, that makes sense, right? So here again, it's just another indicator. So when you're running into species that you, um, say you've been burnt in the past and you worked with the species and you thought, oh, I like this jank of hardness, but holy crap, this is, this is hard to work with. The shearing strength might be something worth looking at. So if we go even closer to home and compare the differences between sugar maple, hard maple, and red maple, otherwise known as soft maple, again, sugar maple dried to 12%. And again, this is Forest Products Laboratory goes off the 12%. It's only going to be higher, harder to shear as you get lower down to the 6 to 8%. Recognize that. Um, to a point. There's a point where it gets so dry that brittleness starts to kick in and it will actually shear better, but you'll end up with more tear out, which is a whole other issue there. So again, 16,100 kilopascals for um, sugar maple, whereas red maple or soft maple is somewhere in here, 12,800. So again, even even easier to shear than cherry. And again, in practice, I find that to be the case. So when I say that I work with walnut, cherry, and maple, I'm working with soft maple. I rarely work with hard maple because it is a royal pain in the you know what to plain. It's not the hardness that bugs me about hard maple. In fact, I like the hardness when it comes to chopping out um, our mortises. I love that hardness when it comes to actually dealing with fine details like molded edges. That's fantastic. It's great to turn. And it's why you find a lot of Windsor chair makers using maple for your legs, for the baluster legs, because of the fact that it holds those train details really, really well. Well, when it comes to planing it, it sucks. <laughs> There's just no other way to put it. Hard maple just sucks to plane by hand anyway. And you know, it's pretty hard on your power planer as well. Run, you know, a piece of cherry through the power planer, run a piece of soft maple through the power planer and listen, then run hard maple through and listen to the difference in sound. And you'll see even that power planer is struggling a little bit. So here again is another indication of why hard maple is so difficult to, to deal with because that shearing strength is incredibly high and it's one of the higher numbers you're going to run into with domestic species you know you get into the hickories and those can get um well some of the hickories can get close but not up to sixteen thousand. a lot of the hickories are in 11 to twelve thousand, which is particularly interesting because hickory has a reputation for being quite difficult to work but it's actually got a lower shearing strength than that of white oak and red oak now not much like a thousand kilopascals lower but still it is actually easier to deal with what i think we've discovered with hickory is it's more prone to weird grain gnarly grain knots which now you're not dealing with shearing strength, you're dealing with compression strength because now you're dealing with the ingrain and slicing away that ingrain is a very, very different thing. So one of the things that makes hickory seem like such a beast is the gnarliness of the grain and the knots and things that you'll find in hickory. 
more than the fact that hickory is rarely grown. It's not really grown for a board producing tree. Uh, it's really not even managed in that way. Or when it is, it's usually grown for flooring. And when it's used as flooring, oftentimes those knots and things are, are viewed as an advantage as for a rustic floor. Whereas oak, red oak and white oak are grown for lumber producing and they are grown to be clear. Want to at least hopefully want to be clear. Red oak is having a little bit more trouble staying clear than, than the white oak. But those numbers are like 11,000 and 12,000 for uh, red oak being slightly lower than white oak. I'm sorry, other way around, other way around, which is another key indicator. Um, red oak is actually softer than, from a Janka perspective, is actually softer than white oak. And offhand, I want to say it's about a thousand difference between the two might not be quite that high but uh it is definitely softer red oak is softer than white oak but i find white oak to be so much easier to work than red oak and that is backed up by the fact that the shearing strength of white oak is actually lower than that of red oak by about a thousand kilopascals so again not a huge difference but what you'll find is the density change, the other things going on in white oak, like the tylos, the, the, I call it caulk that's in the pores, that stops up the pores, that makes white oak a better exterior wood. That holds things together, provides a more cohesive, more homogenous grain that slices a lot easier, that shears away a lot easier, and therefore it's lower force in order to shear away uh, white oak than it is red oak. So this is yet another arrow in your quiver. It's another number to look at. If you are completely uncertain how a species of wood is going to work, if you have decided that the look of Grenadillo is exactly what you want for that cabinet door, you can consult the Jenka hardness and go, oh crap, that's hard. Oh wow, the density is high. It's very, very small pores. It's diffuse pores. It's going to be difficult to plane. But then if you look at the shearing strength number, and I, off the top of my head, I don't know what that shearing strength number is, but having worked with Grenadillo, I will tell you that it's not nearly as hard to plane as you might think it is. So um, I'm furiously Googling here to see if I can find it um, with the shearing strength of Grenadillo is this is the problem. Once you start getting into some of the... Um, um, exotic species to North America, you can't always find the, uh, the, the technical numbers quite as much. Yeah, uh, I'm not finding it. Uh, I could probably dig a little bit further and find it, but I'd be willing to bet that comparing Grenadillo to some of the other kind of rosewood type species that it resembles, you'll find the shearing strength is quite a bit lower. So if you can find those numbers, if you come across a technical um, uh, spec chart for a species, definitely note that stuff down. Shearing strength is something that you should definitely pay attention to because it will tell a story about how that board is going to work. And I think most importantly, how that board is going to work in your shop under your tools. Janka hardness is nice indicator, but you know we're not pressing steel balls into our wood. So it's not really a clear indicator of how it's going to actually work under a blade. You know, it, certainly it requires more force to drive a half inch steel ball into the wood than it does to drive a half inch sharpened chisel into the wood. God, I hope so. If you're sharpening your chisels, right? If you just can't sharpen your chisels at all, it might be the same amount of force required. You've got this dull, this uh, dull uh, chisel that you're working with. It could be the same force. So Janko hardness is not really a true indicator of a real life situation 
in our shops. But shearing strength, however, is a much closer indication of what it would be like to actually work that wood. Hand tool, power tool, whatever, the force required to plane away that shaving or route away that shaving is something that is important to know. So again, I don't want to go into too many other examples just because the numbers are kind of getting really, really huge and don't make a huge bit of, 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 they don't really tell us anything until you start comparing one species to another. But the last parting thing I will say is you will find some commonalities, some direct relationships between shearing strength and modulus of rupture. Modulus of rupture is also known as bending strength. How far can you bend that board before it snaps, before it breaks, before the grain starts to shear away? And if you, when you start to bend a board, you'll see that, especially like um, a more ring porous wood and a more open grain wood, you start to bend it and bend it, it splinters it. You know, think of, a, a, of an old hickory baseball bat, they would splinter. Whereas today, a maple baseball bat kind of explodes. It looks more like quartz breaking um, than, than any kind of wood because of the internal structure there. Needless to say, the bending strength of hickory is a heck of a lot higher than the bending strength of maple for that reason. Because when it bends, it starts to splinter and there's a lot of connective tissue that holds it together before total failure. But those little sections that start to splinter, what we might call grain runout, is an indication of the shearing force. The shearing strength is starting to give way. You're exceeding that number. So you will find some commonalities between a high shearing strength board and its ability to bend without breaking. Likewise, lower shearing strength is going to mean you're not going to be able to bend that as much. So you can find a really, really hard species with a lower shearing strength, aka maple, and look at that and go, just because it's hard doesn't mean it's going to bend well. In fact, usually the harder it is, the less it bends. And in some instances, the shearing strength will reflect that as well. Um, it may shear away easier or harder. And you know you have to pay attention to these numbers all as, as one. You, you can't just look at one number and say, okay, now I know this is the perfect wood to work. They all interact with one another. And as you raise one number, it might affect, it might raise or lower uh, one of the other technical properties. So again, like I said, another arrow in your quiver to consider, shearing strength doesn't get talked about a lot, but I know as a hand tool woodworker, it's a number that I look closely at because I hate hand planing difficult wood. <laughs> Let's just be real. I don't want to spend all my time sharpening. You take a pass and then have to sharpen again because it is so incredibly difficult to plane away. And that's hard maple in my world. So a little bit of a shorter episode with uh, a whole lot of me ranting um, and, and just exhorting people to be nice to one another, which I know had very little to do with lumber, but hey, it's my show. Every now and then, I, I just got to get something off my chest. So let me know if you have questions about shearing strength. It's a bit esoteric, but because nobody ever talks about it, I just feel like it needs to be addressed because I personally find a lot of value in understanding what the shearing strength numbers are in the species that I like to work. So as always, folks, I, I will close by saying go buy some lumber, but be kind to the people when you go buy some lumber. Be understanding to one another. And uh, yeah, let's just try to be nicer to one another, for God's sakes. Go buy some lumber and be nice. Goodbye.